Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. If it's your first time here, my name is Pastor Aaron. I'm the uh, children's pastor here at Living Hope Raleigh. I'm filling in for uh, Pastor Sue today. So while we're turning to uh, Matthew chapter 7, I would like to kind of share a little bit of insight into my time being at Bible college and seminary. There is kind of a stereotype when you are in pastoral ministry, which is that every single story you have in your life will eventually become a sermon. Doesn't matter which one it is, you will have a story and then you go, man, this will make a great sermon. And that's kind of how you start writing your sermons. I didn't know about the stereotype when I was first in Bible college or when I was younger, but once I started to study more and do pastoral ministry classes, I realized that every single story that's even remotely interesting in your life is going to become a sermon. <laughs> this one is no different. So the other day, a few months ago, actually, I was at a park. So every weekend on Saturday mornings, I love to take my dog to the dog park. It's just kind of a routine we do. There's a lot of people that go there and, you know, all of us kind of gather around, hang out, tell each other about our lives. And then, you know, that's our Saturday morning. We go home and spend the rest of the day doing all the other tasks we have. And today, when I went there that day, it was a fall day. So all the leaves were falling, the wind was blowing. It was just the perfect day to go to the park. So as I'm going and, you know, I get out of my car, dog's all excited, you know, to get to play with her friends and all that stuff. I get out and walk in and, you know, they have like benches and picnic tables and stuff. And I sit down and this big gust of wind comes by and I just feel my eyes like really, they feel really itchy this day. And I'm just like, my eyes start watering a little bit. I don't think much of it. I try to rub it because I know there's something in my eye. I don't know what it is, but I could just feel like there's something there. So I start to rub it. And honestly, it just makes things worse. doesn't make things better. I start rubbing it. My tear is, you know, tears are coming out and it's getting just worse and worse. The more I mess with it and the more I touch it. So as we go through this passage today, I'm going to walk you through that little story as well. But before we get to the end of that story, I want to first talk a little bit about Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to start, of course, with verse 1. Because if you don't understand verse 1, you're not going to understand anything else in Matthew chapter 7. So, verse 1, it says this. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, in the context of Matthew chapter 7, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So before this, Jesus talks about the Beatitudes and a few other things on how to act. even talks about the Lord's Prayer in here as well in the book of Matthew. But before that, there's not too many chapters, and we get kind of the starting of Jesus' life and ministry. So in chapter 1, we get the genealogy of Jesus and the birth. And then in chapter 2, we get um, John the Baptist preparing the way somewhere around there. And then 3 and 4 is when Jesus is starting his ministry, especially in chapter 4. So Jesus starts his ministry in chapter 4. And then immediately after that in chapter 5, we get the start of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, this is a pretty long sermon because, you know, we're already in chapter 7 and Jesus is still preaching the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a lot of information that has been covered before, and some of it is going to help us understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about judgment, admonishment, and holding brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. He moves on to the subject in chapter 7. So this is the start of it all here. And he talks about the consequences of wrong judgment, but he also talks about the way to hold brothers and sisters in Christ accountable in a biblical way as well. Now, when I first read Matthew chapter 7, when I was really young, I had a problem with this passage. My problem with this passage was I felt like two things. Either one, man, Christians do not do a good job at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I feel like people just judge each other all the time. And then the other problem I had is, well, maybe I just don't understand this passage, and maybe I just have a really small understanding of what Jesus is trying to say here. Then as I got older and I understood what this passage meant, I then had another problem with Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which is, Christians really don't understand Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. You know, in today's culture, there's a lot of people who will talk about non-judgment. They'll say, don't judge this, don't judge that. Whether you're secular or Christian, one of the cardinal sins culturally is to make a character statement about someone on judgment. If someone does something right or if someone does something wrong, you better not say anything about it. It's a big no-no in our culture. And when I was younger, I would hear this almost every day, the exact same thing. And as I said earlier, the issue is a lot of Christians don't understand what Jesus is trying to say here in Matthew chapter 7. A lot of us read chapter 7, verse 1, and we go, okay, that's it. That's what Jesus said. No further reading required. But we don't read any other scripture that way. So we should probably take this one a bit more seriously than just verse 1. When I was preparing for the sermon, I had to read a few commentaries and read a few study guides and things like that. And one commentary really popped out at me because they really framed this in the perfect way. It says that when Jesus is talking here in verse 1, this is what he means. He means, judge not anyone without full, clear, and certain knowledge of the guiltiness of his or her conduct, nor with absolute necessity and a spirit of tender love. Now, I know what you're thinking. This meaning is not apparent in verse 1. How do you get all of that from verse 1? But I promise you the context will show you what Jesus is trying to say, not only here in further verses in chapter 7, but we also have to remember what Jesus was saying in the chapter before in chapter 6. And I would like to show you that just real quick here. You don't have to turn there. But I think what Jesus says in chapter 6 is applicable to chapter 7. There's three verses here in Matthew chapter 6. We have verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16. Jesus here is talking specifically about the Pharisees. In verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
And then in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus, in chapter 6, says three times that the Pharisees are hypocrites. That sounds to me like Jesus is making character statements about people. It sounds to me like Jesus is judging people, and rightfully so. It sounds also like he is keeping spiritual leaders and people who claim to be spiritual accountable. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, that's Jesus and that's not me. Well, here's the thing. When you are a Christian, all of us are called to be like Christ. We're all called to do what Jesus did. We're all called to live the life he lived. Jesus goes on even more in chapter 7, and he agrees with himself because he doesn't contradict In verses 2 and 3, he warns first about the consequences of false judgment. But then in 5, 6, and 7, he's going to talk about right judgment. But let's see what he says about false judgment here in verses 2 and 3. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So what Jesus is saying is, when you hold someone to a biblical standard, you better be holding yourself to that standard first. You better recognize the log that is in your own eye first. Jesus starts there, and I think he starts there because some of us sometimes can be two ways. We can either be overzealous about keeping each other accountable or we can just ignore it entirely. So Jesus is addressing the first people here. He's saying, do not be overzealous when you keep your brother and sister accountable. The first point is this, we're going to have to treat judgment differently. We're going to have to treat holding each other accountable differently. A lot of us, when we hear that word judgment, or we hear the word accountability, we kind of step back mentally. We don't like to hear that. It's uncomfortable. But the thing is, Jesus calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. Jesus calls us to be like him. He doesn't call us to be how we feel comfortable. Whether this judgment we have is right or wrong, we have to look at it in different ways. If we have a wrong judgment, if we're vain or if we're arrogant or if we're prideful, we need to stomp that out. It is not loving as a brother and sister in Christ to hold each other accountable to these impossible standards. However, it's also not loving to not hold people accountable at all. If we see a brother in Christ in sin, a brother or a sister, we need to make the choice to love our neighbors enough to hold them accountable. Especially the ones we are close with, especially the ones we have a close relationship with. And if we have an arrogant judgment of somebody, if we treat them unfairly, we have to quickly dispel that. 
It's a fine line Jesus is calling us to walk in this passage. And Jesus continued that line of reasoning in verse 2 when he says, if you judge, you're going to be judged with that same measurement. And then in 3, he's talking about people who are so eager to see that little speck in somebody's eye that you don't understand that there's a log in your eye. You know, I left that park after about an hour or an hour and a half, and this thing was still just stuck in my eye. Not only was it stuck in my eye, but now it's like starting to hurt at this point. I've never, usually if there's something stuck in my eye, I can just get it out and, you know, it is what it is. But at this point, like my eye is getting really red. It's tearing up. I can't even open my eye. If I open it, it stings. So I go to the pharmacy. I get myself some eye drops and... I try to put some in my eye and nothing is working right now. It's the first time something like this has ever happened um, where I pretty much was blind in one eye at this point. It was painful. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think what Jesus is trying to convey here by using this analogy of the speck in the log is that the recognition of sin should be so prevalent that it should feel like a log in our eye. It should be painful. It should be something that bothers us. It should be something that we're desperate to get out of our lives. If we have a sin issue, it needs to be corrected. It needs to be desperate. This leads to the second point that we need to treat faith differently. When Jesus is talking about this in Matthew chapter 7, he's describing faith as kind of this like precious thing. I mean, he talks about a speck being in someone's eye and that being a sin issue. A speck is a tiny thing. You can barely see it. And what Jesus is calling us to do when he talks about the log in our eye is he's saying you need to recognize how big the sin issue is in your life first. He's saying you might think it's a speck. You might think it's a small thing, but it's not a small thing. It is not a small thing to Christ I think there are too many Christians today, myself included, who can become too apathetic to our sin, who can become too apathetic to our church life. We misuse this verse in Matthew 7. I feel like this might be the most misused verse in all of the Bible to justify no accountability, no judgment. If Jesus is describing here no accountability to anyone at all, then verse 4 and 5 won't make sense. And chapter 6 won't make sense because Jesus spent three verses contradicting himself, calling the Pharisees hypocrites. Here's the thing about the speck, though, in your eye. If you feel like your sin is just a little speck in your eye, something really small, it still blinds you, it still hurts you, and it still distorts your vision. We have far too many people today outside of the church and inside the church who are comfortable with watching their brothers and sisters in Christ in sin, being far too comfortable with not judging, not having any accountability at all. We are far too comfortable seeing each other hurt in sin, wallow in sin, and even worse, we don't even attempt to get the log out of our own eye. We just accept it. 
Paul in Galatians 6 agrees with Jesus as well. And he gives some clarifying thoughts that I think are helpful for us today. In Galatians 6, 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And Jesus is going to say the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. He says, How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's that word again, hypocrite. It's not by accident that Jesus uses the same word in chapter 6 when he's describing the Pharisees to people in chapter 7 who are overzealous about correcting others. Hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. The worst thing you can be to Jesus is a hypocrite. But notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, take the log out of your eye and that's it. He doesn't say, just deal with yourself and that's it. The life of a Christian is not one in isolation or there'd be no need for us to come to church. Pastor Sue just went through a sermon series on what is the church, on what are the church's responsibilities, what is the church to do for each other. And one of the things he talked about was church discipline and keeping one another accountable. I'll repeat it again. Jesus doesn't say, take the log out of your eye and that's it. He says, take the log out of your eye so you can see clearly to help your brothers and sisters out. Paul says it in another way. He says, to keep watch over yourself, lest you be tempted. The temptation he's talking about is an arrogance or a pride over somebody when you help them in accountability and faith, when you help them with sin issue. Don't think you're above the sin issues that someone else is dealing with because you can fall right into it as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I feel like I need to say this. We cannot afford to be weak and docile Christians for the rest of our lives. We can't afford to go to church, sit in our seats, and become spiritually obese. Meaning all we do is feed on the Word, and then we never have heart change. We come to church every Sunday, listen to a new sermon, and our hearts never change. We cannot keep living each Sunday like the last Sunday. We have to work our faith out. We have to become stronger. And even the uncomfortable passages of the Bible, like Matthew chapter 7, we have to incorporate it in our spiritual life, meaning we're going to have to keep each other accountable. When I was reading commentaries for Galatians 6.1, I was wondering what Paul meant by you who are spiritual, because he says you who are spiritual should be the one to restore people in accountability. So what does that mean? And I read one that I think sums it up perfectly. They say, Someone who is spiritual is someone who received the spirit of truth, grace, and wisdom, meaning someone who is a believer. 
But not only that, it's someone who continues to live and walk in the Spirit. So not just someone who is a believer, who is a new believer, but someone who walks in the Spirit as well daily. Someone whose spiritual life is strong. That is what Paul is asking of us. He's asking for congregants of each and every church to become spiritually strong so we can hold one another accountable. There is a need in church, a desperate need for strong spiritual leaders. And the first question I thought to myself when I read Galatians 6.1 is, does that describe me? Am I someone who is spiritual, who can help in accountability for others and invite people to help in accountability with myself? And I also want to pass that question to everyone here today. Does that describe you? someone who is living by spirit and truth each and every day walking with the Lord. Because I'll tell you this, your church needs that. Your church needs people like that. If all we are doing is listening to sermons every single Sunday, and all we're doing is hanging out at church, eating our lunches and fellowshipping while those things are great, If all we're doing is that, then we're not a church anymore. If we never change, we're not a church anymore. We're just an after-school program. We need people to live unapologetically for Christ instead of living unapologetically sinful lives. I believe that apathy is a killer of church. It's a killer of spiritual growth. And I believe with my whole heart, this attitude of don't judge or this uncomfortability of keeping one another accountable comes from a place of apathy, not just to other people's sinfulness, but even more so an apathy to our own sinfulness, where we just stop caring. Because if no one corrects me, I can do what I want. And if I don't have to correct others, well... I can avoid those uncomfortable conversations of accountability. I realize I left you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger about this silly story with my eye. Um, Where we left off was I was just in such bad pain, I couldn't get this thing out. Um, As I said earlier, I couldn't even open my eye at this point. It was so bad. I was just in extreme pain. I got so fed up with it that I just got up and thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll just rest for a second. Maybe if I just keep my eyes shut, maybe somehow this thing will get out of my eye and I'll feel better. But I couldn't even sleep. That's how bad it was. I couldn't even just lay down and close my eyes. Even shutting my eye now was starting to hurt. And I apologize for anyone who is like squeamish in this room because it might get a little gross, but I just got so fed up with it that I got up and I went into the bathroom And I grabbed my eyelid and I just like pulled it out, (laughs) flipped it over, and I just like poked my eye because I was like, I know something's in there. I know there's something in there that I got to get out. And I pulled my finger out and I, I promise you, the thing was so small I could barely see it on like my pointer finger. And then I had like a little sigh of relief because the pain was finally gone and I could feel better and then... The first thing I thought to myself was, this would be great in a sermon. (laughs) 
and I fell for a stereotype of all the other pastors. <laughs> but the thing is, this little piece of leaf, it was just a little piece of a leaf. It was minuscule. I could barely even see it. This thing was the culprit of all my pain. It was all of my agony. For hours on end, I just was in pain and couldn't get this out. And, you know, I think that's the point Jesus is trying to make about sin. Is even if you have a little speck in your eye, that should be causing you misery and pain and conviction. And you should desperately try to get it out. I think there's been far too many churches that have died because of an apathy towards sin. I've been at churches in the past. One of them was the one I grew up in. It had over a thousand members, close to 1,500. It was a great church. And I remember because of some apathy towards sin, the church split. And then after it split, it was completely dead after five years. It doesn't matter how big you are. doesn't matter how many programs you have. doesn't matter how nice you look on Sunday. doesn't matter how great the music sounds. If you have an apathy towards sin, it will kill your church. Paul actually records the severity of sin not being judged or corrected in a biblical way in 1 Corinthians 5. Here, Paul is talking about how this church in Corinth has gotten so out of hand that there's sexual immorality in the church, but not just a regular kind of sexual immorality. It's so bad that even unbelievers think it's bad. They're disgusted by it. Paul says that the pagans don't even do these things. And what is Paul's prescription for the situation of sin? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. In other words, Paul is saying, if that's you at church and your sin is that rampant, I don't even want to associate with you. That's how bad it got for the Corinthian church. I wouldn't even eat with you. And then Paul says this, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, if our sinfulness gets so rampant and so bad, Paul describes people leaving the church. Today, I'm not suggesting that we find every single person who has a little bit of sin in their life and say, okay, don't come to church anymore. You're out of here. Because, you know, if that's the case, I think all of us would be out of church. 
but Paul is trying to convey the severity that sin can have in a church. This church of Corinth in particular, he is conveying that it can be really bad and there are very dire consequences if not addressed. Our last point is this, that we're going to have to treat sin differently. You know, we have to treat accountability differently. We have to look at it in a different way. We can't revile so much from it. And I think one of the reasons we can't revile so much from it is because it is a safeguard to our faith. Holding one another accountable is a safeguard to our faith. Or another way I would like to say it is it's almost a spiritual wellness check for others, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then our faith has to be treated differently because we have to make sure we think of it as precious, as something that needs to be guarded, as something that needs to be protected. And then the reason we have to treat sin differently is because a lot of us are underestimating it and the effects it has in our lives. We as a church will die if we do not live by what Scripture says. We will die if we treat Sundays as a time of just fellowshipping and no spiritual growth and no spiritual change. We have to become spiritually mature. Whether it is small steps or big leaps, it doesn't matter. We have to start walking on the spiritual journey. Jesus, Paul, the apostles all say that we must keep each other accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to close by saying that there's a lot of us in this room, and I've been there as well, where we have that apathy to sin. We think our sin is just fixed, meaning that it's just not going to change. We've had this sin issue, whatever it may be, in our lives for so long that we think it will never change. Some of us in spiritual apathy feel like there isn't any hope. But I just want to remind you, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ who feel hopeless, I want to remind you of who you are, and I want to encourage you on who you are. Paul says this, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. You are not separated from Christ any longer. If you are a believer today, you are not separated from God's changing Spirit any longer. We are all a part of the church. We are all a part of God's family. The New Testament even says that we're co-heirs with Christ. You are in His family. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can change you, can mold you. And maybe today a part of that is finding someone you trust to be an accountability partner with you. Or maybe it's finding someone who you know needs accountability and offering that to them. 
And if you haven't come to a faith in Jesus Christ, the only thing I really have to say to you is don't wait. God's calling you today. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to restore you. He's ready to bring you into a right relationship with him. To forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, he is ready for you today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you for your Son, Jesus, who is the ultimate example of how we should live our lives, of what a Christ-centered life looks like. God, I pray that through your Spirit, you will change us. I pray that you will help us to become more like you. And God, for the things that are uncomfortable, keeping our brothers and sisters accountable, God, I pray you will help us in those things. God, I know that there are times where we can become spiritually apathy, apathetic. We can have spiritual apathy. We can think that our sin is just fixed and there is no changing it. God, I pray that you'll help us to be reminded of your changing love, your changing grace. And God, I pray as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the church, we will come to each other in a spirit of gentleness that will help one another, lift one another up, and we'll keep each other accountable to be more like you. God, I ask today that you'll change our hearts, that you'll give us a new heart. Not tomorrow, not the day after, but God, give us that new heart today. Your scripture says that you renew our minds daily. God, I pray you'll renew our minds today. It's in your son's holy and precious mighty name, I pray. Amen.